episode dedication to Lee Edwards Alford. I still think you're better than those solid gold dancers. The following audio presentation contains language and subject matter that may not be appropriate for the little ones. Don't go acting like nobody warned you. The views and opinions of correspondents may not necessarily reflect those of the Ushery Network. Now enjoy yourself. When his leg got better, we played, we had like a, we, we played a Halloween gig. And the Halloween gig was out of control. It was a house party. It was this giant house. Uh, hundreds of people were there, man. And when I say that, I'm not even kidding, man. And um, it was thoroughly out of freaking control, man. People were anxious, I guess, for us to play again. And um, they kind of bum-rushed. You know, we weren't on stage. We were just in this room, but they bum-rushed us. I had this dress on, and uh, um, it, it, got, it got pulled off of me. And uh, and Amy, I was dating her at the time. Remember her throwing herself over me, and because and, like when I say it got pulled off, like I I literally didn't have anything on, and uh, so she was like covering me, hollering for people to like stop, <laughs> and uh, uh, and then Steve, I saw, I was laughing, and I think that uh, uh. Uh, Marsh neighbors was in overnight lows on and and like he and his wife Daphne have really waved the flag from for for punk I mean they're basically punk rock royalty from Jackson as are some other people here man I would say even the state um but Marsh was in white trash at the time too and I think he I looked over and I think he was throwing up and Jamie had been on a two month tour of uh, South America and he had this really weird little mustache and like I, and and I just saw Steve like hauling butt out of the room and wobbling, you know, wobbling because he still had this brace on his leg and then later that night he was like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. I almost got my leg messed up again. Okay, y'all, here we go. <laughs> From the Ussery Network Studio, Mississippi, USA, this is Play Dead, the Jackson, Mississippi music scene of the 80s and 90s, and this is episode two, Bob and Sherry and Tim and Alice. I had a friend in high school by the name of Hudson Abel. There were two things Hudson found important in life, weed and music. His bedroom in his mom's house was a smoky little hangout in which you would often lose track of the time. It did not help that Hudson had taped black garbage bags over his windows, completely doing away with the light of day. We formed a band in that little room, the two of us, called Grand Old Party or GOP, 
We both sucked, by the way. Hudson had a four track. He would just hit record and start playing something on the bass. I would start playing drums with my fingers on a little drum machine. Yes, live, not patterns. Then we'd go back and put vocals on it or audio from a Twilight Zone episode, something like that. I was as surprised as everyone else when we got the news that we were to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of... No, that didn't happen. Here's what did happen one time. Hudson had uh, two older brothers, a normal brother and a problem brother. Whenever his brother Duke wanted something, we'd be recording or listening to something. We'd hear, Hudson, and be like, fuck. Anyway, one day or night, Duke busted in the room shirtless. He said, Hudson, give me a shirt. I need to go up to the stove. Hudson goes, where one of your own shirts, man? Why you want my damn shirt? Duke's like, I ain't got one. Hudson, what the fuck, man? Just get one out of that pile over there. So Duke went over to the clothes pile without any discrimination, grabbed a black t-shirt, and walked out. I figured we had probably seen the last of Duke for a while. He was gone to get more beer. He'd be fine. A little while later, Hudson. Oh, boy. Duke comes back in the room. He's once again without a shirt, holding the one he borrowed in his fist. Mad as hell. Why you give me this goddamn shirt? Hudson goes, you asked for a damn shirt. Duke goes, they threw me out the damn store. Lady yelled at my ass all the way out. Turns out the shirt Duke had snatched up was a dead Kennedy's shirt with a big swastika on it. Now, Jello Biafra and the dead Kennedys were anything but anti-Semites. It probably said something like F off Nazis or something. Evidently, the people in that convenience store had not taken the time to read all the text. I'd love to tell you that Duke learned some kind of lesson then, but I really doubt that. I really enjoyed putting together half-assed songs with Hudson until the whole thing with us started to get a little repetitive and I came to understand that a lot of what I wanted to do musically would not be permitted. It ended abruptly. Most of the music projects I've had were similar to GOP in that there was no serious effort given to being a live band or to growing an audience. And let's face it, kind of a big part of the deal. That's why any band needs that person who is laser focused on working out songs as a group, on performing those tunes in front of crowds, basically playing, promoting, and playing some more. Essentially, a band needs a Sherry Cothran, as in the Sherry Cothran who left her hometown of Meadville, Mississippi, intent on rocking it out in Jackson and sought out the host of the local punk rock radio show. Uh, 1980, uh, when I moved here, um, of course, I knew Carla just by telephone mainly, but I met her at WZZQ. She had never been in a band before. She wanted to be the singer. I said, cool. <laughs> I don't sing, so you'd be the singer. I'll play, I'll, you know, I have my Shredder I'll play the guitar. And so at Bebop, um, I put a sign up on the counter in 1980 that said, um, looking, looking for a punk rock new wave band. Um, you know, I think I put on there, you know, I'm looking for a bass player, drummer, and uh, see Sherry behind the counter. And and so uh, a guy named John Wagner walked in and said, hey, I'll 
I would like to be in a band. I'm, I'm a bass player. Sherry's all right. Cool. We still need a couple more players, though. And John said, you know what? I know some dudes. Those dudes were drummer Joe Partridge. He's the one you heard last episode talking about singing What If Don Was One Of Us. And David Mampowski, or as he was known to most in Jackson, Dave Minshew. So here's Joe telling how he met Dave. David and I grew up on the same street together. Uh, I was riding my skateboard around the neighborhood one day, and he was out cutting the grass. And He, uh, uh, he said, are you going to speak? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I spoke to him, and we hung out. And, uh, when I was in that little high school band, uh, he would come over to listen. He did not play an instrument. And a few times after he came over and listened to him, he said, uh, those guys are horrible. I could do that. And he went and bought a guitar and started doing it. And here's Dave himself. I was, I was going to Clinton High School, and, and Joe Partridge, his family moved on the same street as my family, and he was going to Clinton High School. And he's a couple of years younger than me. But he had a garage band, literally. His, his parents had this great little practice room up above the, the garage. And I started I started just popping up there, and I'd go hang out with him, and, and I'd go listen to the little band play, and then they'd all go home. And then um, I, I would, I would like, take their guitars and their amps and plug them in and play along with Joe. <laughs> and that's how I learned <laughs> how to play. <laughs> so we had been playing for about three years, and we were really tight friends. And, and he just he came up from work one day, and we were hanging out, and he's like, man, these three people came in the store today. And I mean, I'm telling you, they were punk. They had the right clothes and everything. And they were just really cool. And 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 it was Sherry and John Wagner and Carla Westcott. And they had been playing and recording stuff on the little four-track as a three-piece with Carla on drums. And he finagled the way for us to get, me and him, to get to go jam with them. And just like that, the Germans. When I first met Sherry, you know, she, she came up into my practice room, and, which was my bedroom. And... Uh, I was just absolutely enthralled. It's like, wow, this person wants to play with me. This is incredible. Because she was, uh, she was no nonsense. She was not here looking for anything other than a band. Sherry Cawthorn was new to the fellas. Carla, on the other hand. We were in love with Carla already, me and Joe, because she had had a radio show like at midnight on Saturday. Carla was going to sing, and, and it, was, uh, it was kind of her and Sherry and John's endeavor and you know they kind of found us uh, I think the main appeal for us was that I had a place to practice I thought they were all like super cool and I was just trying to hide the fact that I wasn't as cool as them and, and just like make Carla a place for me in that Sherry was already a rock star well, you know, I know everybody in Jackson knows a Sherry Cotton there's a reason for that <laughs> she's yep. just a magnificent rock star um John Wagner was on bass. He was a little older than us. He was kind of goofy at times, but he had he had more experience than we did. And Carla didn't have any experience at anything, but she had so much gumption. At that point, we were doing covers because we didn't know each other and we didn't know really what we were going to do. So we were doing Sex Pistols, The Clash, Susan the Banshees. Okay, so we were playing these songs in a room by ourselves and then it caught our attention that Everloving Saturdays, a little bar, 
was having a talent contest. The, the winner was going to receive a recording deal for a 45. Could have a 45. It may be hard for the kids of now to appreciate what a big thing that was. Your own 45. How can I explain? Well, it's kind of like if you were able to post a TikTok, but mostly only famous people could post TikToks. I don't know. I tried. So the next weekend, I brought a notebook of, of, of my, like, you know, words. I had tons of, of lyrics. And so let's write, let's write our song for the A and the B side. So Carla just started reading out of my notebook. We put music around it. Here's the Germans' punk predecessor, Ed Inman. I remember seeing the, the Germans, they actually won a talent contest. But uh, <laughs> again, this is <laughs> this takes me back a long way. Yeah. But I, I, was, I was impressed with them. I called up the, the club and said, because uh, I worked at the music store, right? So I said, look, if you'll let us play last, I'll supply the PA. And they were like, oh yeah, that'd be great. And so, you know, usually the, you know, the, 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 the last guy is, is, uh, plays, that's who, that's who they remember. And so, yeah, we won, just because I think we were pretty bombastic and you know, they'd never seen anything like that in this area. And it was, that and your main event strategy. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, these, these are, you know, these guys opened for us, we're the yeah. headliner. Jason Triplett, who would become a major part of the Jackson scene in his own right, has always been a fan of that 45. I would put that, you know, on the turntable before and after just about anything that I've grown up loving, man. That is an incredible release. Of course, you know, we were a strange band. When we were doing the contest at Saturdays, a lot of people walked out because we were like, you know, who was, who was, who were these people making this noise? And it's like <laughs> they didn't understand it. And that was, again, just leading us on because it was the punk thing and it was just the thing that wasn't like anything else. You know, we're not these bands in Jackson playing Steppenwolf songs all, all night. And it felt great. And the band got some attention. We we played around town, you know. And um, So you're the hottest thing in town. What do you do? Well, split up the band, of course. Our recorded legacy is two songs. You know, Carla left the band and so we continued as a four-piece for a short while and Sherry was ready to, to move to New Orleans to try to do something with Carla. So when she quit, uh, we were just kind of, you know, we were rudderless at that point. And David and I, um, Jeff Lewis had, had uh, approached us to, to play. Radio London is where you might say the next chapter begins. And things start to get a little messy. Jeff, Jeff Hardy had tons of songs. He writes 10, 20 songs to my one. This guy, Jeff Lewis, had rapidly become a well-respected band leader type guy in Jacktown. He was happy to scoop up Partridge and Minshew. And a fourth member of the band just happened. We, and then we played the trio for a while, which was real fun. But we didn't. We swapped off on bass and guitar. We borrowed a different bass for every show, and sometimes that was tragic. In very short order, one night at Skid Marks, um, John Hicks drives up to the stage and he says, y'all need a bass player. I'm going to be your bass player, okay? <laughs> we went, well, I... We told him to come to the next practice and he was our bass player because he's great. This band was, as most of the ones we've profiled up to this point, primarily covers. 
hence the name Radio London. However, they were steadily working more and more of their own tunes into performances, and Lewis and Minshew seemed to be a perfect melodic marriage. I don't know where Jeff gets his harmonic knowledge. His chords in his progression can be a little complex, but they're harmonically, uh, well, that's what I would say, his playing is harmonically complex. And mine's not at all. I'm really simple, give me three chords, and I'll try to put a pretty melody on top of it. That's what I got. Dave calls himself simple. Here's what SIP filmmaker, musician, and journalist Ron Rodenmeyer had to say. David, a wonderful guitarist, can play anything, can, you know, go just go wild on a solo, but it's always tasteful. There are a lot of notes, but they're never too many. And about that band altogether, Ron references his wife Catherine here. Radio London. My wife had their their seven inch, and I love that record. And I, I think actually they're the band from that era that kind of the band that that could have could have but did not that's because another band was just about to blow in and shake things up like arguably no other band from the period i'll give you the 411 in just a sec first i want to let you know that if you're listening to this episode of play dead on the free feed itunes spotify soundcloud that's great i do appreciate it but you could have laid your ears on this material a lot earlier if you were an Usri Network premium subscriber. I've been producing nonsense such as this for a good long while now. You'll also get access to the Usnet archives. That includes stuff like SIP News Reviews, the new show Under the Bus, that's just me talking trash about other people, and the series that pulls back the curtain on the production of my previous true crime investigation, Behind 13. If interested, please visit us3network.com and click Premium Trip. Or you can just skim the show notes associated with this here Play Dead episode. There you will find a link to all things JLU. Alright, back to the program. The whole family sat around the television and watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and that was... Uh... You know, from that point forward, you know, I was probably four years old or something, and I was that was it for me. I just thought that was the coolest thing ever, and that's you know there couldn't be anything cooler than that. And I was kind of correct. That is the voice of Tim Lee, one of the founding members of a band that once actually included Jeff Lewis, that guy who would go and create Radio London. This band rose to heights of which others only dreamed called The Windbreakers. Jackson was a weird place to grow up playing music because when I was a teenager and all, the only thing there was was cover bands. And if you were in a band, that's what you were in. You know, nobody wrote their own songs or anything. And, you know, as it got a little bit later in the 70s and stuff, you know, cover bands got a little bit cooler maybe. But, you know, it was still cover bands. And, um, and I really was fascinated with this notion that 
you know, there were bands elsewhere. If you want to see, you know, some band in a club in New Orleans, there were some local band that opened that had their own songs. And, you know, I thought, well, that was probably the way to go. And uh, Tim Lee went to an Alice Cooper show. And there he met another Jackson musician. And this dude, Bobby Sutliff, he shared that passion for creating original music. Because Bobby was already writing songs and, like, making home demos on two cassette decks and stuff. And, yeah, that kind of was, to actually know somebody that was doing that, kind of lit a fire under me to do it myself. Yeah, there was a spark and a fire. Here's Malcolm White. I'll never forget Tim Lee called me and said, I got a band on that I want to play in your club. And I said, well, where can I hear you? And he said, well, come to the Ramada Inn North. I'm, we're playing for a high school senior party, and you can... I'll put you on the guest list and you come hear us. And I thought, this is, this is a disaster. But I went up there and I went in and I heard uh, Tim Lee and, the, and, and um, his band, The Windbreakers, and they were great. They were raw, but they were great. And I booked him immediately. We decided we really wanted to make a record and we, of course, didn't have any money. And we got offered this gig. It was like a New Year's Eve gig at the Fort Gibson Country Club that paid, you know, a bunch of money. And you know, for our standards. And so we showed up and faked our way through it and took the money and, you know, went into this gospel studio that didn't seem to know any more about what we were doing than we did. And somehow we got a four-song EP out of it. And, you know, we kind of put it out and Susan and I sent it out from our living room. And, yeah, then there was like a review in New York Rocker magazine. And it was like, oh, okay, you can get stuff out in the world. The EP in question was Meet the Windbreakers. That little piece of vinyl made critics take notice and just made Tim and Bobby that much hungrier. They wanted more. And this time they were looking for guidance from an experienced and skilled hand. By the way, you'll remember the Don, Don Morrison. You met him last episode, the Mobros guitar guru. Here's what he said when I asked about bands from any part of the country, 80s and 90s, of which he was fond. Of whom? I'll say of which. One band I really liked a lot was Let's Active. That was Mitch Easter, who produced R.E.M.'s first album, Murmur. I have to tell you, going into this podcast series, I had no idea the degree to which R.E.M. and Mitch Easter influenced the Jackson scene. One time at the old store on Highway 80, uh, these people come in, and, you know, the, the store was right off the interstate, so it was an easy stop. They come in and get guitar strings and whatever, drum heads, drum sticks. And, uh, and he comes in. I recognized him instantly. And I said, hey, you're Mitch Easter, aren't you? He said, no, I'm Keith Richards. So, yeah, for Tim and Bobby, this made sense. You know, had the, uh, the good fortune to have become aware of this guy, Miss Easter, and, you know, we read about him in New York Rocker and all this stuff, and then we found out, oh, he's got a studio in North Carolina. You can actually drive there from here. So we called directory assistance and just got his number and called him and said, you know, hey, we're these idiots from Mississippi. We want to come record with you, and it was incredibly affordable back then. So we just drove over and recorded for a day and did two songs, and uh, just, you know, we're beside, beside ourselves to actually recorded with somebody who knew how to make records. I mean, it was so revelatory. You know, in 24 hours, I learned 
almost everything I know about recording to this day. That's big kudos coming from Tim Lee. I asked what it was like dealing with Mitch that first time out. Oh, man, yeah, he was exceptionally cool. And just, you know, so, you know, giving of his knowledge and, you know, and so he got into the whole whatever we were doing, you know, which makes a big difference than just some guy that's, you know, pushing knobs and telling you mm-hmm. to do it again or something. You know, he was he was down with anything we wanted to try and um, and then had, you know, a million ideas when we ran out of them. So, yeah, and, and he's one of my good friends to this day. I mean, he's just great, great dude. It was around this time, the release of a second highly praised EP, that Tim said, you know what, not so much anymore with the cover songs. I, I was the one that kind of uh, rebelled against that and eventually went, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, and, you know, because we'd put records out in the world and gotten some acclaim and some attention and, you know, we were still playing three sets of Beatles songs, and I just didn't want to do that anymore. So how was that received by Jackson audiences? You know, people liked it fine, but they were definitely happier when somebody was playing songs they recognized. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that to feel sorry for myself or anything. It just was a, it was a time of, you know, change, and it wasn't changing real fast. The Windbreakers may have gotten a few dirty looks, skipping the golden oldies for the hometown crowds, but they were focused on the bigger goal of crafting albums and getting them heard. They proved to excel at the former, and Tim proved to be the master of the latter. You know, every little thing kind of made you go, okay, there's a world out there in which you can't put this stuff. You don't just get 500 copies and put them in your closet. You know, you actually can't get them out there in the world. Here's the SS drummer you met last episode, Chris Hall. When I went on the road with him, there, there was hardly a day that, especially when we were on Atlanta and Georgia, where some important person didn't come out to see him and have lunch yeah, with him yeah. and talk to him, and I was impressed with that. You know, the Southern pop thing was, was big at that point due to REM and, and, and bands like that, uh, you know, and the, the B-52s to some degree. Uh, and a lot of it was just Tim's tenacity, and uh, uh, he just loved it so much in every aspect of it that he just immersed himself so completely in all of it. It was so cool that he, everywhere we went, people knew him. The release of the full-length Terminal in 1985 led to a full-scale tour, and for the Windbreakers, that became a thing. You drop an album, you go out and play. You're young and sleeping on people's floors and getting to play rock and roll and have a good time. They were playing up in Missouri, where I was from. They actually had a pretty good following in St. Louis, where I grew up. But... An interesting wrinkle. I was definitely willing to go out and play, and Bobby had some things going on where it was hard for him to go out and tour. And um, Sutliff, essentially one half of the band's engine, said, eh, no thanks. Tim, not exactly stoked on the idea of taking his guitar on stage and doing karaoke, started making calls. Sherry's just a really special person. He's a really um, unique character who can write really, really good lyrics. After the breakup of the Germans, she had joined Carla Westcott in a thing called Pregnant Men, playing out of New Orleans. But that had dissolved, and her only current commitment was to Bebop Record Shop. Sherry got Kathy Morrison's blessing to go out with the Windbreakers, and even a promise that she would still have a spot at the store when she returned. And she was in. 
And let's see, who were some other great, dependable Jackson rock stars who would fit the bill? Tim Lee asked me and David to go out on tour, me and David and Sherry to go out on tour with him as the windbreakers. That was the whole thing was if you got a chance to tour and you were an up-and-coming musician, you were an idiot not to do that. That's right. For the time being, Joe Partridge and Dave Minshew would join the group, leaving Radio London somewhat depleted. The Windbreakers had gotten written up in Rolling Stone as an up-and-coming band, and, and um, they, had, they, were, they were hitting really well at that point. For Dave Minshew, this opportunity also contracted him to the difficult task of learning Bobby Sutliff's guitar parts. Oh God, um, I, I, it was a challenge. It was, it was a damn challenge. Bobby Sutliff was a guy, just as a guitarist, who I'd looked up to, like, like since first hand in a band in Jackson. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, and so from, from the time I started playing, he was always around because, I mean, the Oral Sox and then the Windbreakers, you know. Mm-hmm. And if, if people don't know, just know that, that Bobby... <laughs> Bobby can tear a guitar to pieces. Sounds like Bobby could be a little intimidating. I called him on it years later because he would stand and watch the band and he would like cross his arms and just stare at you, at your fingers. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes there have been moments where he would walk into the club and do that and I would fall apart and forget how to play guitar. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, when, when I told him that story, he was just, oh, Dave, that's just how I learned. I watch people play guitar. Dave did get his homework done before the big test, and in doing so, became friends with Bobby Sutliff. And how did touring go? Well, I mean, to, to start with, I was frightened to death. I mean, we, I had really not played, I don't, I don't know that I had ever played out of state at all. And I think one of our first gigs, if not the first gig we did, we, we drove to Athens and played at the 40 watt, we were gonna open for the DBs. And we, when we got there, um, like three quarters of REM guys were there and they weren't, you know, mega stars then, but they were, they were definitely, you know, nationally known. Uh, they weren't certainly what they ultimately became, but they were a big deal. And so it was just real intimidating. We were upstairs at the 40 watt, of that incarnation of it, in the dressing room area and of course Tim knew everybody Uh, we didn't know anybody and real intimidating real nervous you know holy crap what have we gotten ourselves into and um, I remember Mike Mills was up there and I remember him looking at me like he felt really sorry for me (laughs) like you know there's a lost puppy that poor thing you know hope he survives that kind of thing uh, so, but no, it was it was one of those. Uh, you know, I have fonder memories of it now than I, I did then because we were homesick. You know, we were out three months. We did what twenty six states during that time. Uh, it was grueling, and and of course we weren't used to it. Tim was used to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had been he'd been uh, seasoned over the years, and and uh, and we were just. You know, we weren't, uh, but it was fun. I mean, it was a, it was it was incredible. Some of the shows that we got to do, some of the the people that we met that that uh, you know we met people that were rock stars. We met people that 
were nobody at the time that became rock stars. I mean, it was really, that was, that was, that was a, a unique experience. And we got to play a lot of the clubs that, uh, you know, the iconic places that you had heard about and read about in, in the magazines when you were kids. And we got to do a lot of those. And you know, we got to play CBGBs, you know, that was incredible. And that was that was amazing. We got to do the Lone Star in, in New York and the Decade and yeah, it was and we got to play with the church, you know, that was cool as shit. The traveling was hard work but it, playing at all those places was super exciting and it was just something I felt like I probably wouldn't get a good chance to do again. I never had before. I knew that the situation I was in it wasn't gonna go down like that. So it was opportunistic, and I said, yes, I'll go tour with the records, you know. When I talked with Malcolm White, he told me most bands who tour at the level of a Windbreakers sort of learned where their pockets of fans lie on the map. And Joe pretty well backs that up here. In Washington, D.C., we played the 930 Club, and we were opening. And I don't remember who we were opening for, but Tim knew them. They were nice guys. I forget the band. Um... But we got there to play, and the place was just packed. It was just, you know, completely packed. And we, we did a really good job. And, but our main focus at that point was, we got to get through this so we can get in the van and go sightseeing at midnight. And we wanted to go see the monuments. And so we'd go off, and we left him because he's friends with this band, and he doesn't want to offend them, and we didn't care. And so... We came back uh, after we got through, and these guys are in the middle of their set, and this place is empty. There's nobody there. We did another gig with these guys, and it was the exact opposite. <laughs> in the Jackson scene of the 80s, the Windbreakers really did become an inspiration. Their music is still being reissued. Why did it click with so many people? Jangly pop, smart lyrics. They're perfect pop songs. You know, the Windbreakers, to me were interesting because, and one of the things I really like about them was there's such a push and pull of two very different styles and different songwriters and where Bobby was definitely much more in the, the pure um, kind of power pop um, sound. Tim, you know, he was a little more rough-edged and a little more Americana, something like that. Josh Little was just a kid back then, but he would eventually kind of run in the same circles studied music and one of my favorite types of music is foreign like New Zealand Australian 80s new wave pop type stuff the windbreakers for me were like a Jackson band that like really pulled that off really well the uh, but it's like I, I never thought I could ever meet those guys all right if that band worked because of Tim's aggressive promotion and schmoozing and he and Sutliff's blending of styles and attention to craftsmanship and because it all went down at just the right time, why did the Windbreakers not hit the level it seemed they were destined to reach? I mean, yes, they were a big deal, but it fizzled out before approaching REM success, for example. In answering that question, I think Joe Partridge probably hit the old nail on the head. They always had a different band. I think as a result, it never did get to click. It never did gel like... A, like a band like U2 or R.E.M. where it's the same dudes for decades. And so they, you know, they just start reading each other's minds after a while and it, and it becomes a unit. Tim was wanting to form a band when 
said, I want you to play bass. I said, okay. So that, that was another band that we called Upbeat Temptation. We put, a, put an album out. Neither Tim nor Bobby was ever content with just being the windbreakers. And maybe it showed. And the side project that stands out as a bit of an anomaly is Beat Temptation. And the big thing was like when me and Sherry Cawthorn and Bruce Golden started Beat Temptation, you know, that band never played anything but originals. And we, you know, we put on our own shows, so it was no big deal. They were doing Beat Temptation, and that was Tim Lee out front and Sherry Cawthorn, who at this point it was since switched to bass. Nobody knew she was such a badass on the bass. Amazing Bruce Golden on drums, who everybody knows is the drum sensei of Mississippi. And and, uh, and uh, Robin, Robin Sutliff. He was still playing some saxophone then. And he also played some guitar and he did other things. And uh, they were amazing. They were, I would really, really call them a for real post-punk band. Just, yeah, they were great. The way they fucked with rhythms. Beat Temptation, that that was my, my, my band band. I, that was my, been my most favorite band I've ever been a part of. Loved that band. I liked what we were doing. It was it was psycho, jazz, funk, rock. It was just different. It was all original. I loved it. There was lots of room to experiment. See, if I used the word jazzy, people would think, but no. We really were all together like a little over a year, maybe, or something like that, but we played a lot in that time and did a whole lot of stuff. It's, you know, we were a pretty adventurous band musically and uh, we spent a lot of time kind of just talking about <laughs> At the height of one of the members the rolling ball, the temptation was so big and it's playing. I'm kind of like, damn. Radio London was still at, I'm still like, damn, this is the best band ever. For whatever reason, the Windbreakers, despite achieving so much, stopped and started and hiccuped and fizzled, and eventually just wasn't a thing. And it was time for Dave Minshew to face the fact that his decision to go on the big cross-country tour had driven a wedge between himself and Radio London captain Jeff Lewis. The, the stubbornness was me and Jeff. You know, Jeff was a Jeff was a founding member of the Windbreakers. He left them to form Radio London. He called me up after, you know, he, I was at home, was done with tours. He called me up, and he basically said. He just kind of said, "Look, I just it it bothers me that you're touring with Tim, and we should be working." And and I said, "Well, I don't care." David told me he should have really sat down with Jeff, thanked him for everything, explained how much this Windbreakers tour would mean to him, why he couldn't not do it, how important it would be for him to stay with Radio London. But that's not what he did. He gave the attitude right back to Jeff, and that was that. Meanwhile, Joe Partridge managed to keep a cool head and maintain his relationship with Lewis. Radio London in that incarnation was over. We, we started it back again without David. And David went on to play with the Primatons and several other bands. I kind of lost track with David at that point. I've always thought that he and I, um, we kind of 
grew into music together and neither one of us would have been as strong without the other at one point in our lives but I think that after that tour we kind of we kind of came back as men you know we were we went out as boys we came back as men and we were it was time for us to part post Minchu Radio London evolved but so Radio London uh, ultimately became you know it a uh, big picture to you know we wanted to do all originals and of course that's that's a a death sentence usually in a local scene you know it's and it was <laughs> but we had a you know Jeff was really prol- prolific and so we we did a lot of uh, our own stuff maybe we would you know do a, a cover tune here and there but um, so yeah that that lasted for several years went through several uh, secondary guitar players. I met people at the store. Joe Partridge, the drummer, um, initially recruited me for a band. A uh, very good guitarist, singer, and songwriter named Jeff Lewis. Jeff Lewis did still have at least one thing in common with Tim Lee. They both got lyrical assistance from Sherry Cawthorn. When I joined, they had already made an LP and there are some very good songs on it. Um, lyrics, I think either most or all of the lyrics were written by Sherry Coughlin. Dynamite lyrics. And in fact, um, there's a couple of those songs that I would still put in my top ten of all songs written by people I know. Awesome lyrics. And, and just at the right time with Jeff. Bands like the Germans, the Windbreakers, the Big Picture, Beat Temptation. Some of the early rock stars who emerged out of Jackson, Mississippi in the 80s. There are more to cover and a whole lot more into the 90s. Before we get there though, our next episode will cover the various promoters and venues from those two decades and break down the amazing list of bands who stopped by to play, from upscale institutions to dirty dives, and from hardcore obscure to known the world over. It's next time on Play Dead. Party people, you know I appreciate your listenership If you're picking up what I'm putting down, there is a mighty fine way to show it. Please take a moment to leave a positive rating and review. It'll keep the wheels a-turning. And look, if you want to know immediately when episodes drop, all you need to do is turn that there subscribe knob. If you heard some music you like in this episode, you can find links in the show notes. By the by, the song you're hearing right now was written and performed for this series by Doc Booger. You can also find the link to all things Ussery Network. That's usserynetwork.com. Oh, you know what? A little retraction from episode one. I hate it when that happens. Chris Zuga, I'm absolutely certain you remember him. He is not the owner of Comic Commander. He's the manager. He never told me he owned it. I don't know why I said that. Also, turns out, Everything I've told you so far actually happened in the 70s in Ketchikan, Alaska. Now, I'm only kidding about the last part. 
just joshing you. Don't get cheesed. All right. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. And I am dystemic, according to um, the last person I talked to about this, which <laughs> that that means low level depression. Like okay. Not not enough to be considered. Uh, like you know, like not enough for medication. Well, no, yeah, there's medication, <laughs> but but just just the just the cheap stuff. Not mm-hmm. enough. Not enough to get you on the on the dole for disability. <laughs> <laughs>